Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. So here we are. It's September. I have a complicated relationship with the fall. I love summer with all of my heart, and I really dread the descent into cold weather and shorter days. But as a political reporter, the fall is my time. It's when campaigns go into high gear and when voters are starting to pay more attention. So I thought the best way to ease into the next phase of campaign 2020 was to talk with two of the summer's busiest political reporters. I have spent my summer on the inside of an American Airlines plane (laughs) and in a slew of Marriott properties. I've been on the trail all summer. That's Annie Linsky. She's covering the 2020 campaign for The Washington Post. And I also caught up with Josh Jamerson. I'm a national politics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. I mostly spend my time with Elizabeth Warren on the campaign trail, but I have seen Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in South Carolina Nevada with Cory Booker, and then I spent a lot of time in Iowa where Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker are making really um, aggressive plays along with some of the lower tier candidates like Steve Bullock and Michael Bennett who really see Iowa as their first shot. Both Annie and Josh have gained more than just frequent flyer miles this summer. By being on the trail with the 2020 Democratic hopefuls, they have some of the most valuable insights into how Democratic primary voters are receiving these candidates. The last time I talked to Annie Linsky was back on this show in April, right after Vice President Biden announced his candidacy. She described him as the X factor. And folks, I promise you, if I end up being your nominee and win this election, you will never have a better friend in the White House than Joe Biden. So I asked Annie where she saw him now. It's been remarkable how steady and durable his lead has been. You know, it's one of the questions for me is to what extent is that name recognition still, or, you know, sort of genuine affection for him. And, you know, I suspect like any big, broad question, there's a little bit of both going on there. Is that their sense, too, is that they're trying to figure out this question of, is this just a genuine affection? Or is it, as we had talked about earlier, this desire, above all else, to beat Donald Trump? And in their mind, he still fills that category. I mean, that has not changed at all. That is still the primary desire of almost 10 out of 10. I was going to say 9 out of 10, but I really I can't remember the last Democratic voter that I've spoken to whose primary mission is not beating Donald Trump. They all say that. And, and they've been very, very consistent on that point. To me, I feel like Biden has been there you know, sort of capping off the race at at the top, and it's the turmoil has been going on underneath him. One of my questions going into this fall is do the waves and the the stirring that's happening below him, does that break the surface or or not? When I asked Josh Jamerson whether Biden was a fragile frontrunner, he told me there are two different narratives taking shape, one from Democratic observers in the Beltway and another from voters. There's kind of two arguments I hear from Democratic observers. And one is that, it, you know, if you look at it, it is literally pretty fragile and that he's somewhere in the low 30s percent. And Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, depending on the poll, are on his tail in the high teens. But the other camp I hear is that it's actually a pretty 
Teflon lead in that after controversy after controversy after controversy, he is still the front runner, and his rivals haven't been able to penetrate that aura of electability that he has pitched his campaign on. So I hear those two different arguments from Democrats more inside the beltway. And then to your second point about what voters are saying, I see voters, no matter if it's in Michigan, in Detroit, or if it's in South Carolina, or if it's in Iowa, who really connect with what he's saying. I heard you playing the tape of my buddy. My buddy, I shouldn't be so casual. President of the United States, Barack Obama, by the way, he's a hell of a guy. He has a lot of goodwill built up in the party. And if you're a lifelong Democrat and you voted for Barack Obama twice, and that was kind of the last Democrat that really could capture the imagination, if you will, of the Democratic electorate. I think a lot of Democrats acknowledge Hillary Clinton probably wasn't that candidate. I mean, you look at Joe Biden fondly, and that's what I hear a lot of voters say when I go to Joe Biden events um, across the country, or more importantly, to events where all the candidates are speaking. And I get to see how voters react to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden across these different types of events. This is what people say. Now, if someone won the summer, that would be Senator Elizabeth Warren. She's been the only one to make real movement in the polls. She's gotten great marks for her debate performance. She's bringing in huge crowds. And yeah, you don't back down from a bully. You you have to be willing to lay into this, right? And nobody's getting behind me on a debate stage and doing a handsy thing. That's not Josh has spent a lot of time on the road following the Warren campaign. He thinks the slow and steady rise of Warren is part of her secret sauce. Let's compare Elizabeth Warren's summer to Kamala Harris's. Kamala Harris had a very prominent moment during the first Democratic debate. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. That really was a good moment for her. She had a fundraising spike. But now in the primary, she's down to fourth place in most public polling, Mm -hmm. whereas Elizabeth Warren has had a much more protracted uh, rise uh, in the polling and in fundraising, where she was off to a much slower start, never really had one definitive moment. But if you talk to some of her aides, they say they said this when the polls weren't looking good. And they even say it now today that they kind of have their blinders on and they try to just emphasize the plans that she rolls out to maximize whatever that specific plan is to whichever audience they're trying to target. And if you want to call that a secret sauce, I think that's probably as close as you might be able to get to one. And it's resulting in crowd sizes now where she can get 12,000 people in St. Paul, Minneapolis, 15,000 people in Seattle, Washington. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens in Washington Square Park in New York uh, the Monday after the debate where she's uh, doing a big speech. I don't want a government that works for giant corporations. I want one that works for our families. Annie Linsky agrees. I think Senator Warren has had a phenomenal summer. And really, you know, starting from March, you could say she's had a phenomenal spring and summer. She's sort of defined, you know, steady progress. One of the things really interesting about her rise is that it hasn't been a viral moment that you can point to 
in her campaign. You know, we always talk about and think about these moments that shake up the race, a debate moment, a a comment on CNN, a exchange at a town hall. And really, none of that has happened. And, and a lot of that is luck. But instead, it's been these fundamentals that have mm-hmm. just kind of slowly over time created this momentum for her, particularly with white liberal voters. I mean, for her going into the fall, going into the stretch, I think one of the questions I am going to be trying to answer is, like, can she expand out beyond that white, well-educated, liberal base um, and and attract some of the white working class voters that have been supportive of Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and African-American voters? Um, that is an area where she's continued to be weak, even as she's had these, these sort of tremendous gains with the white liberals. Of course, Bernie Sanders is also a serious contender. Hi. And I asked Annie for her thoughts on how the Sanders campaign has fared this summer. So brothers and sisters, we got a lot of work in front of us. There is a cadre of voters who you talk to. They are kind of Bernie or die voters. They are so proud of him. They they have a strong emotional attachment to him that kind of goes beyond policy. They see him as somebody who stood up to the DNC, to the Democratic establishment. And that, for me, the people who really talk about that with Sanders are the ones who are going to be the last to leave him if they ever do. There are other Sanders voters, people who I talked to who who caucused or voted for Sanders in the primary last time, who are feeling a little iffier. And, you know, they focus more on policy. And those are the ones I feel like are more likely to move to somebody like Elizabeth Warren. But that diehard group exists. And I do wonder, you know, I'm not sure that it's going to be enough, and maybe it will be enough for him to succeed in the early races. And from his perspective, his his team believes that they have, there are a lot of voters who say that they like Biden, who really should be Sanders voters. So they are seeing it as a, that, that Sanders is a candidate of the white working class, in addition to other groups, but that he's, he's strong among white working class voters, and that Biden is right now kind of artificially holding on to some of those voters, but that Sanders is going to be able to come in and, and grab them, and that they will move to Sanders' camp. And so that's where they're seeing where they can really grow. His numbers are long, among African Americans are actually fairly good, if you look at some of the early polling um, out of South Carolina in particular, which is a function of his He's, he's been there before and they know they know him. But that, that's where they see their growth is those Biden voters, which is interesting. It's not as much with with the Warren voters where you think that there'd be more of an overlap. Finally, I wanted to know what issues people in these early states are really talking about. For Josh, it depends on where you are. I think in South Carolina, for example, I, I come back and I often go through my notebook and I see that there's so many voters in South Carolina, especially African-Americans, who bring up inequality in education as a big issue. And I don't know that I hear that as much in other parts of the state. Um, South Carolina, the local newspaper there in, I believe, Charleston or Columbia, did a big project about the inequality in the state education system there. So I hear that a lot when I talk to voters, especially African-Americans. I think in New Hampshire, I hear a lot about student debt because they have one of the highest rates of um, uh, student debt accumulation. And Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both uh, talk about that. 
there because they both have some sort of debt cancellation plan. Um, so there are those types of things where there are definitely issues that resonate in one space over the other. But I think anywhere you go, you know, or in multiple places I've been, one common theme I've said is, you know, how are you deciding who you want to be the Democratic nominee? And a lot of voters, I hear them say that, you know, they may like Bernie Sanders or they may like Elizabeth Warren or they may like Pete Buttigieg, but they think Joe Biden has the best chance to beat Trump. And that's what's most important to them, that Trump is not the president come January 2021. So that theme of electability seems to be pretty well seeped throughout the Democratic electorate. Thanks to Josh Jamerson of The Wall Street Journal and Annie Linsky of The Washington Post for taking time out of their busy schedules to chat with me this week. The Trump campaign spent their summer by kind of kicking off a pretty intensive rally schedule. Elena Plott is a staff writer at The Atlantic where she covers the White House and she's been following the Trump campaign rally by rally. So I went to rallies in Manchester. So whether you love me or hate me, you got to vote for me. I went to their official kickoff rally in Cincinnati. They've never seen anything like this before. You came from the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and you came for, I mean, look, from wherever you came from, there were a lot of you. It's amazing, you know, you go to those rallies and you, the energy really is as it was in 2016. And it's, you know, it's no wonder that at the surface glance, the Trump campaign feels that if they keep their base together, that they will be fine. I mean, going to those rallies is like nothing I've ever experienced. And it gets crazier, it seems, each time. Um, The problem, though, is you kind of see that their strategy is so much to hew to their 2016 one that it's just like a greatest hits playlist each time. So you hear build the wall chants. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. You get to a certain point where it occurs to you that, you know, they can't chant, we built the wall, for example. I don't think they have a chant yet with regard to trade policy with China. But of course, that's something Trump still loves to talk about, being tough on China. But in Manchester, it was the first time he said, you know, I never said trade deals with China would be easy. Of course, he said that verbatim (laughs) along the campaign trail in 2016. So you're starting to run up against this moment where... You know, the chants are fun, the energy is great, but when it comes to their slogan, promises kept, promises delivered, they can't really deliver on that mark. So um, if you were to chant the actual reality of the wall and say, you know, um, we've rebuilt six, we've replaced 60 miles of fencing, the funding for which was appropriated in large part in the Obama years, it doesn't really have the same ring. Yeah, (laughs) or we've redistributed already pledged military funding to build new sections of the wall. Right, for a national emergency that was apparently just so dire that it took us two years to decide that we actually needed to do it. What about this discussion that we hear sometimes that, well, they are trying to reach out to suburban women. There's talk of, you know, maybe even replacing the vice president Mm -hmm. uh, to pick a woman which would appeal perhaps to those voters? Or do you see that really, at the end of the day, this is not going to be about trying to pick up swing voters. It's still really about making sure those rallies are are the centerpiece. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that the rallies are still the centerpiece. At the same time, the campaign in the last two weeks has 
tried to, to actually began reaching out to those suburban women swing voters in earnest. So Laura Trump, Eric Trump's wife, is heading up this Women for Trump group. They had their kind of kickoff event in Palm Beach, and they're going to be going across the country to that. And hopefully I'll be at a few of those. The problem, though, Amy, is these suburban swing voters are the usually the kind of women who, you know, a lot of us referred to them as Ivanka voters in 2016. They were not people who showed up at rallies, really. They, they didn't want to advertise necessarily that they were for Trump. They were the kind of women who you might talk to and they'd say, oh, I, you know, I hate his tweets. I hate the crassness. I don't like him, but the economy is great and I like his policies generally. And I'd rather he be president than Bernie. You know, those kinds of women are pretty hard to identify, actually, because they're not making themselves available to the campaign. Mm. And I think it is for that reason that Trump, who really thrives off of people who are expressive in their support of him, why he thrives on so much energy from those big rallies with his core support. For campaign advisors, you know, I think this women in Trump thing is probably a better effort than they had in 2016 to identify those voters. But, you know, I'll be curious as I keep reporting on whether the women who actually show up at those are just peeling off people who would have been at a rally to begin with. Right. The other thing we've heard a lot about the campaign and what they've been doing this summer is spending a lot of money on their digital campaign. And my understanding is what they're doing is not simply advertising to voters, but trying to find those Trump supporters who maybe sat out in 2018 or sat out in 2016. The theory being there are more Trump people than you know. Some of them are quiet about it. They don't show up at rallies. Others of them were people we weren't able to get in 2016 because we just were running this sort of shoestring seat of our pants campaign. Is that your sense, too, is that they're going out there to find every single potential Trump voter in these swing states, and that's that's their strategy going forward? So they do, um, they do feel deeply in this idea of a silent majority. I mean, they um, kind of harped on that phrase in 2016. And as we've just been talking about, I think there was a lot of truth to that when you actually finally looked at polling after 2016. Um, I do think there, were, there was a phenomenon of sorts where, you know, people just didn't want to say they supported Trump out loud because they felt embarrassed by it. You know, I could see that being some of the women in like the Houston suburbs, for example, The problem, though, is what we saw in midterms is that a lot of those same people who did vote for Trump in 2016 switched in 2018. And I know that based on congressional races I covered out in those Texas suburbs. I mean, it really was fascinating um, that the sentiment was largely anti-Trump driving them to the polls. So you have to wonder if that will happen again. At the same time, I don't know that when I talk to Trump campaign advisors that the focus is necessarily on finding every single potential Trump supporter there is, which I think is the flaw in their strategy and why, you know, there are so many skeptics on the outside who say, you know, it's great that you draw all of these rally crowds. What happened last time is that turnout was such that that could be enough for you. But 2018, I think, was, you know, a harbinger in that way to show people are actually motivated to turn out on the other side in ways that they may not have been before. And if those numbers hold steady, for example, you know, 8 million people turning out in Texas versus the 6 million that Ted Cruz thought would turn out, that, you know, that's not looking good for this president. 
Elena Plot, thank you so much for coming in thank and speaking you, with me today. I appreciate it. Elena Plot is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers the White House. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. We're now about five months out from the Iowa caucuses. Iowa is make or break for presidential hopefuls. Over the last 20 years, no Democrat has won the nomination without winning either Iowa or New Hampshire, which votes a week later, or both. So to get a better understanding of how the race is shaping up in that state, I spoke with Matt Paul. He's a Democratic strategist based in Des Moines who's worked on a number of presidential campaigns in the state. There is a tradition of this progressive, strong energy early on in Iowa. But around Thanksgiving time, generally, people tend to look around and say, who's presidential timber? With a crowded field like this and well-financed candidates like we're seeing, this could really become interesting as we march towards a convention in Milwaukee. This seems to be the issue for Biden as well. Like, we may like some of these more progressive candidates, but can they really beat Trump? I think we have to be careful not to measure these campaigns Mm -hmm. based on the campaigns of the past. Mm -hmm. For Elizabeth Warren, she has uh, a a rock-solid organization in Iowa by all appearances. I think uh, she has to simply answer in the 150 days or whatever it is to, to caucus uh, evening, she has to answer how she's going to win and answer that question that everyone is asking. Boy, I really like her. Can she get elected? We all like to pay attention to organization and what are they doing uh, in persuasion? What are they doing in reaching new voters? But this really is going to come down to who performs well on that debate stage, who is connecting with early state Democrats who is able to inspire and excite Democrats and ultimately unite the country. But I'm wondering if there is that other candidate in the race who has the capacity, you think, to be that sort of John Edwards, that surprise candidate. Tell me what you're hearing or seeing. Well, there's going to be a surprise. The question is who it is. Is it a positive surprise? Cory Booker is very well positioned. He's got to have a moment. It's either going to happen or it's not. Uh, He has got a good structure in Iowa, really good people. He has done his politics brilliantly, I think, but he's not had a moment. And he's not moving the needle in these numbers and and needs to. Is the vice president going to hold? Is he going to be able to go? Is he going to be the secretariat of this race and go from the starting gate to the finish line in the lead? And is there an opportunity for a Steve Bullock or an Amy Klobuchar or more of a centrist Democrat Uh, to pop into second or third place. Right. Listeners here from all over the country who do wonder, how does Iowa get to be first all the time, especially when we know that the electorate, the Democratic electorate, is obviously much more diverse than the state of Iowa. So why does winning Iowa tell us 
about the better candidate for a more an audience of Democratic voters who are going to look a lot different? Well, the Iowa caucuses are critically important. They're not perfect. But remember, C-2008, Obama, comma, Barack, won the Iowa caucuses. Listen, we are an older white state, but uh, this is a state that gives these candidates, whether they have a million dollars in their bank account or whether they have a hundred bucks, this is a state you get an honest shot and you have to go out and make your case and not just go to the population centers, the Des Moines and Cedar Rapids, but you've got to go deeper and get to Wacan and you've got to get to Albia and you've got to get outside of Council Bluffs. So the caucus itself, I think, provides more voice than we just see on paper in the numbers. Mm. Matt Paul, thank you for coming in and talking us through Iowa. Thanks for having me. Matt Paul is a Democratic strategist based in Des Moines, Iowa. There's something of a consensus building within the so-called mainstream political media that it's just a matter of time before Joe Biden's Teflon shield is deflated. His debate performance have been shaky, he's not as quick on his feet as the other candidates, and he's spent most of the campaign on defense, either explaining his past votes or changing long-held positions on policy. But it also seems to me that many in the political class may be underestimating the staying power of a flawed but popular and well-known candidate. In 2016, for example, the assumption among the political elites, me included, was that once the summer ended, so would Trump's hold on the lead in the GOP race. Voters would start to get serious about electability and stability and would reject this unorthodox candidate. Obviously, we know that that didn't happen. This isn't to say that Biden's destined to win the nomination, but just that his staying power may be more durable than we think. He's built up a lot of goodwill over his many years in office, that no one else can claim. The show is produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. He also produced our theme music. Vince Fairchild is our engineer. Polly Rungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our assistant, but a better title would really be our hero. And Deirdre Dubke is our executive producer. You can call us anytime, 877-8-MY-TAKE, or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>